you can understand yourself up the yin yang, but if it's not making a difference, then it's not enough. It's not cracking the code for you. And so the things that I've learned about myself and the things that I've imparted to other people, like, yeah, that's great to know that, but what does it change now? And if, if you can't get to that question, then maybe you haven't dug enough yet. How we make sense of the events and the emotions that we experience in life has a huge impact on how we move through the world and ultimately on our sense of self. Understanding this allows us an opportunity to really examine that meaning that we are assigning these experiences, to make it conscious. And with that conscious awareness comes the ability to like make intentional changes and shifts in our perceptions, in our interpretations which empowers us to break through protective or defensive barriers that we might have built up so that we have more say in our ability to show up in the world as the person that we genuinely wish to be. So here to talk about this idea with me is Gary John Bishop. Gary is one of the world's leading personal development experts and a New York Times bestselling author. In his new book, Grow Up, Becoming the Parents Your Kids Deserve, he asserts that All the parenting books that offer kid-oriented solutions aren't helping. Instead, he says, we do not need more tips and tricks and techniques. Instead, we as parents need to unlearn what has been ingrained into us so that it doesn't keep popping up in our parenting outside of our awareness. So open your mind, rethink your perspective, and enjoy my conversation with Gary John Bishop. Are you a new or expecting parent who's wondering, is it normal to feel this way? Am I doing all this right? Or what should I be asking that I don't even know that I should be asking? The reality is becoming a parent is a huge transition and planning and support are two of the most effective tools in promoting your best postpartum self, which is why my group practice, Upshur Brun Psychology Group, has now opened enrollment for a six-week group program to equip new parents with simple tools and supportive resources aimed to help ease every new parent's life. This group is run by the brilliant psychologist, Dr. Kate Kuno, who is our training director and she is an infant mental health specialist. She is the perfect person to be running this amazing group. So whether you are a first-time parent or you've done this a bunch of times before, you can definitely expect to walk away from this group feeling more prepared, more confident, and armed with specific strategies for how to best support yourself and your family during this transition. This small group will meet virtually on Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern starting October 30th, so make sure to sign up for your spot now. Go to upshabren.com to schedule a free 15-minute assessment call to see if this group would be a good fit. That's U-P-S-H-U-R-B-R-E-N.com to get our free recommendation of a customized plan that will work best for you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. 
Hi, I'm super, super excited to welcome our guest today on the show, Gary John Bishop. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. This is uh, this is awesome. I'm a, I'm a really big fan of this book that you wrote, um, which is called Grow Up, but you have a lot of other books. And, and I kind of, I was really curious when I was reading this book, like, how did you, can you share a little bit with us, like how you got to the books you wrote and then how you knew this was the next one? Because your books have a very specific style. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like cursy Scottish style, I guess would be the best way to describe it. There's not a lot of cursing in the books, but, it, but you know, I tend to curse. So, you know, it's kind of in the books there, but, um, I, I, you know, I get any personal development a long time ago, you know, almost two decades ago now. Um, and, you know, I've always kind of looked at the personal growth books like that a little too flim flammy, a little too, you know, sweet. And it, look, I mean, that works for some people, right? But um, but it never worked for me. I always just thought, oh, you know, and even the whole idea of personal growth and development seemed like ugh, to me, you know once upon a time in my life. And so um, I, I wrote, you know, I'd been in the industry, I'd been a facilitator and worked tons of workshops and, you know, worked with people who change and transform their lives, you know, like really down in the dirt with people with no eye on, you know, creating some kind of profile for myself or anything. That wasn't the game. The game was people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then I thought, you know, I, I would like to write a book that, that I would read, right? Not in a kind of self-indulgent way, but one that kind of speaks to me and, and the way that I interact with life. Yeah. So it had to be had to be like um, some sophisticated ideas, but presented in a way that I could get my teeth into, you know, which yeah. that's the biggest challenge, you know, with people when you're presenting them with some pretty complex philosophical ideas. How do I say this to a guy who's changing tires in Pennsylvania? Right. Or, yeah. or, or like a point of two, you know, like a single mom in Alabama. Like how does she get teeth into this? Um, this idea of philosophy and how to use it in life. And so that's when I wrote my first book. Right. On Bleak Yourself. Um, and, uh, you know, that book sold millions of copies, became a New York Times bestseller. Um, but again, that was never the aim. The aim was always how can I impart this information to people? which led me into the next book about self-sabotage and kind of what self-sabotage is really about, in my view, from, again, from the perspective of the kind of philosophy that I follow, which is ontology and phenomenology, right? It's not it's not a psychological examination of what, but there are echoes, you'll hear echoes in phenomenology and ontology. Um, and, and so as I'm going, like, as I'm going from one book to the next, you know, it's like, it seems very organic to me, it seems very, like, well, this is the obvious book to write, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, the last book that I, I wrote um, was about being in a relationship. It was, you know, what is it to love another, and how do we how do we navigate that? And and I've had lots of people asking me about parenting, you know, and and you know my advice, which I would never give anybody. Um, but but it, so so this whole idea of well, what you know, like you, you, there's a lot of books out there, and, I, and I'm guessing a bunch of them are really useful on tips and tricks and you know hacks and all kinds of stuff. 
Wait, I'm too busy as a parent for that. You know, I've got three boys. I can't be reading books on tips. You know, i I got stuff to do. Um, yeah. And so what I really thought would be really useful for people would be to see, um, to kind of peel back this whole notion of what is, well, what is a parent? Like, what is it to be a parent? And, you know, I'm under no illusions. You know, I don't give a dang what you've done in your life. Being a parent will be the most challenging thing you've ever done in your life. And, and part of the reason why that is, is because you can't, no matter how much you might try, you can't unshackle yourself from the way you were parented and the mm-hmm. way your parents were parented. <laughs> and yeah. so, and which is it's not really a question we dig into too much, you know, other than just kind of the story of it or whatever. Um, but the implications of that, right? And the implications of who your parents are and who you are. And, and then the last thing that really I wanted to get into this book was, Here's what your kids are going through, right? Like, in their development, like, what is it? Because a lot of what young people are going through, it seems circumstantial, but I want people to get it's not. It's it's evolutionary. It's it's part of what they're supposed to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this book just seemed yeah. obvious for me to write. Yeah, and it's amazing because, like, you you know, you're saying like this, you're not based in your sort of work isn't rooted in psychology, but as a psychologist, I'm like, okay, we've, we're touching on intergenerational transmission of trauma. We are touching on appropriate expectations for our kids that are based on their actual developmental stage. Like you're looking at our intrinsic sort of innate knowing and connection to our child, which I think our society has done an unfortunately wonderful job of kind of disorienting us from and like getting us to focus on outside motivators versus like these sort of innate intuitive connections and cues that we know how to read in our kids. We just have to remember we know how to read them. Like it could be a book that (laughs) parallels to many of the things that like psychologists or some psychologists talk about when they talk about parent, like the, the psychology of parenting. So I love it. Right. I mean, you know, it blows my mind. A lot of therapists, psychologists, I spoke to a group of psychoanalysts, actually a conference. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> right. But, um, but when, you know, when you give somebody like an on so so I mean, simply put, like ontology is the examination of being, and you're always being something, right? You're always being one way or another way, and most of your default ways of being are just there all the time. And so, when you examine those with people, I mean, there are there are neurological explanations of that, there are psychological explanations of that. That's all great, but. But when when someone from like say a psychological or neurological background comes along, you know, they've, it's it's amazing like how the parallels are there. Like you can hear the like I said, like the echoes uh, in the work. And you know, I'm always really flattered. You know, a lot of, a lot of um, you know mental health professionals use my books. You know, they give my books to patients and say. This guy's kind of saying it in a way that I can't say it to you. So yeah. <laughs> you should yeah. probably read pages eight and nine or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, um, but but no, I mean, it's, it's, look, it's all about the greater good. It's all about people, you know, taking a really healthy approach to themselves and their self-examination. And, you know, 
in, in understanding yourself in a way that makes a difference because I think that's key. You know, like you can understand yourself of the yin yang, but if it's not making a difference, then it's not enough. You know, right. it's not cracking the code for you. And so the things that I've learned about myself and the things that I've imparted to other people um, have always been, you know, inside of that big commitment. Like, yeah, that's great to know that, but what does it change now? Yeah. And if you can't get to that question, then maybe you haven't dug enough yet. So let's talk about that. Because, I, I, you know, one of the things that you talk about right at the off the bat in the book is that, like, you don't need to know how to parent. You need to examine how you were parented. You need to examine how you think about how you were parented. Right. And that really struck me because I agree with you. <laughs> um, so I can you talk more about like, not just like why that's important, but then what does that information, knowing, reflecting on how you were parented and how you think about the meaning you make of the way you were parented, because I think that's critical. How does yeah. that impart change? So... I love hearing somebody with your background talk about meaning, right? Because to me, it's everything. Like, it's everything, right? There's everything you want to unlock about yourself, to me, is in whatever meaning you've apportioned to your past, right? So when people talk about their past, they don't talk about what they made it mean. What they talk about is what they say happened. Yes. Right? And so I say, okay, but... And then if I offer them the idea that that's a perspective, you know, they lose their minds, right? They're like, oh, that's not a perspective. That's what happened. And I say, it's still a perspective. That doesn't diminish it. It doesn't diminish what you had to deal with or go through. But it is a perspective. And there are other ones there, if you look, and available to you, right? So, but, the, but to me anyway, like, to me that was kind of like when, you know, for in terms of my own development, that's when the atoms split when I first saw meaning, right? You know, like when I was a kid, my father drunk alcohol excessively. What did I make that mean about myself? But what did I make it mean about him? Oh, well, I made it mean that he was this kind of person and that kind of person and that some of which might have been accurate, but mostly wasn't, right? But it started to kind of fill up the space of my mind and my, and my experience of myself. And so as you parent, it's important for you to understand that you're not a blank slate. And, and one of the things that I say in the book is it's kind of arrogant to presume that this is the only generation that's ever tried to break a generational chain, right? I mean, every generation's tried it, right? They've all done it. I mean, what do you think people were doing in the 20s? And in the 30s, and in the 40s, and in the 50s, and in the 60s, and they're all trying to break generational chains. Yeah, the chain persists. And the chain persists because it, it only deals with circumstances. It never deals with, but what's going on here? <laughs> like, like what's, what's happening is this young person is kind of putting together some sense of what they are and some sense of what the world is. And all of that, by the way, again, from, and my work is all grounded in meaning, like who I am, who the, what the world is, who other people are. And it's, it's, it's like sweeping generalizations that just kind of drift into the background. And then you just start dealing with life and you can't quite put your finger on it. 
And so in the book, I say, mostly what we've arrived at is I'm going to do what my parents did or not do what my parents did. That's it. That's what we've got. Now, I'm going to, I'm going to not do what my dad did, right? And this is where I tie any childhood because that's what your children will do. They'll do what you did or not what you did. And sometimes not what you did is what your dad did. Mm-hmm. And so it wow. continues, right? It just keeps flipping over generation to generation. And you might get a couple of generations in a row. So I'm really more about understanding the chain than breaking it, like to see what it does and why it does what it does. And and, and why, but I think probably the biggest thing that jumps out at me is the illusion of of the say that we think we have with our children. Mm. Like that's always surprise. People think, you know, oh, yeah, my child's gonna be and then, you know, it's not your child doesn't turn out that way because you can't access the meaning that they give life. And you can you can't get them to even cognitively understand when that's happening for them. What's important for them to understand is that it's happening. Right. Um, and, and I've done that with my own children. You have them understand, well, you're going to make this mean something. And only you'll know what it is. Yeah. But I can't, I can't direct you. Don't make it mean that. <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> Doesn't right. The, the young people don't work that way. They don't. No. You know? It's interesting, right? You can't, you can't, you don't control how the people in your life, especially like in this context, your children make meaning of things. Right. Right. But you you can, I would, I would argue support their ability to reflect on the meaning that they make, which Mm -hmm. is, I think your point, right? Like, and I think if parents, like you said, like, you know, we, we, we look at what our parents did or didn't do and we decide what we want to do or not do based on that. And that usually is the way it goes. But if we instead look at what does it mean to me that my parent did this or didn't do right. this? What do I think it meant to them? We're, we're working on what I would call reflective functioning. Like your ability to put yourself into the internal world of another um, and also to reflect on your own internal world. And we know from research on attachment that um, a an ability to to reflect on what our parents did or why they did what they did right can can impact how secure we are in the world and then that can get passed down to our kids like our secure attachment our ability to like heal attachment ruptures with our parents right. can then get passed down to the next generation, but it's not about changing how they make meaning. It's about giving them the tools to reflect on the meaning that they're making. It, it's about having them get that this is meaning. Yeah. This is not reality. This is meaning. It's your reality, which is not reality. And again, that doesn't diminish it. You just need to understand like this is a mechanism happening with you as a human being. And if you can see that, if you can see that even even in retrospect, even looking back, like when you're right, like, oh, my gosh. Right. So one of the things that, you know, I often talk about this, but I'll say, you know, one of the things 
that happened in my life is I laughed myself with this internal sentence that I'm not smart enough. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, I, I don't know when that started. But I know that it started. I know it was life before that. And then there was just this kind of creeping experience of myself that I was behind. That wasn't behind academically. It's just like, I just felt that I didn't know enough. And so... I wasn't walking around saying, myself, well, you know, I'm not smart enough or I'm not going to do that because I'm not smart enough. No, it just sinks into the background. It becomes this kind of deeply fundamental belief. And that's the thing with, you know, you could say self-limiting belief, right? That's the, self, the thing with self-limiting beliefs. You can't see them. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't know yours. <laughs> Why? Because you believe them. <laughs> right? yeah. You can see yeah. other people's. See somebody else who's like, oh, that's just a self-limitation. And that noise or that experience of myself hasn't gone away. I just don't treat it like I should believe it. I don't, I don't always do what, it, what I feel like it wants me to do. And so, again, that was part of that process of, you know, understanding, you know, what a young person's going through. You know, because sometimes I'll, I'll use the word trauma, right, which is very common would be very, a very common word for you to use. Um, but an ontology would be less common to use the word trauma, right? We would just say an incident, like there was a moment where you saw something and you experienced something and it changed things for you, right? It's something's hard for people to get their head around the idea of trauma because they think every trauma is traumatic. Yeah. And they're not all traumatic. There are some of them are just like little turns you took because... There was like this moment in your young life where it like interrupted the flow of how things were going and you just adjusted permanently and then adjusted permanently, right? It's not these little like, and, it, and you can, you can recollect some of the incidents, right? You can go like, oh yeah, that time when, and I realized, right? And so sometimes in, in this book, I want people to see like how, to make the connection like, oh, yeah, I made these adjustments when I was a kid. Wow, my my mom must have made them. Mm-hmm. My dad must have made them. And my children are making them. Mm-hmm. And if, if I could get people to get anything from this book, it would be to see that's the chain. You don't, it's not circumstantial. It's inevitable. But the more you understand what it's trying to do and that it does what it does, the more freedom you'll actually have to act independently from it because as you're becoming an adult, you can actually observe it. You can create this kind of separation between yourself and it because it becomes a thing like Jung would have said, right? Like you're, you become conscious of and, and it's in that awareness you can examine it and see it. it's almost holographic in some ways, you know, you get to see through it and the impact of, of life that way. And the impact of maybe some of those very early ontologic, what I would call an ontologic decision you made. Mm-hmm. You may not have been a conscious experience of a decision, but you made one. And then you start to see how the whole thing got built up. Um, and, and I just think like there's, I think people get a lot of freedom from, from examining that to authentically parent, like to just authentically parent with no strategy to, to try and make up for something 
that happened 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. And those things are passed on that way. Yeah. So how do you, like, how do you suggest parents approach that first step of like reflection? Like, I like your point that not all traumas are traumatizing or traumatic. There are things we adapt to. Right. But if we're adapting kind of permanently, they're changing the trajectory. Yeah. They're interrupting what might've been our original trajectory. Yeah. So how do we get back to the original trajectory? Um, I wouldn't say go back. I would, st- I would, I would start with something like, what if, what if you could live with uh, that being there or being a block for you or being some kind of barrier for you? What would, would free you up to do? Who could, or in other words, in my language, who could you be? Mm-hmm. If you get who you've become and you get like the pathway and you saw how you ended up that way, right? Who could you be? So, you know, one of the big things for me was, this was about 15 years ago. And again, it's beyond ontologically, so I'm, one of the big discoveries I made that I'm kind of stuck with this way of being called being hard working. Mm-hmm. And I'm hard working about everything. There's no off switch, right? Like, like you can imagine going on vacation with us, right? There's no, <laughs> no big, you know, there's no vacation. Let's go, right? We have stuff to do. Um, and, and, that, and it become like my default answer to being alive. And so then the, the temptation is, well, how can I pivot away? And I, I, I couldn't have it away until I understood the damage that it was doing. Mm-hmm. Like, what was it? What's it like to live with us? Like, what's it like for other people to live with us? Then it was like the branches of a tree. And then I could look at it and start to get a bigger picture of, like, this way of being. And, okay, it's great for a career. Absolutely unbelievable. But imagine trying to love that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what I understood for myself was I was hard to love. I wasn't easy to love. And then when I looked at my life, I'm looking at like, well, you know, what's that like for me? Well, I'm left with that experience. I'm left with that experience of like, like love doesn't matter. So I opened up this and it took a lot of vulnerability and a lot of real authenticity to come to terms with that. But I started to really examine like, well, what if I was loving what if, what if I was that guy? Mm. And then I took it on, like expressing my love and, and being, being like this, you know, loving, connected, you know, human being. And it was weird for people around me, you know, like my sisters were like, what's going on? Are you high? Like what's, you know, because <laughs> I wasn't that guy. I wasn't the guy to come up and say, I love you. Right. But it's interesting because you were saying like uh, the first part of you that was like, like that you highly identified with was I'm a hard worker. Right. And then in examining that and the meaning you gave that, you were able to kind of step step back a little bit and kind of objectively view the absence of the loving, the loving guy. I'm a hard worker. I'm a loving guy. Are they incompatible? Do you, how do you make space? Did you make space for both? Well, it starts to become more like we're all on automatic. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not just being the being that will become automatic. You don't have to get up in the morning and switch on. You're there. Right? All the nuances, all the biases, all the various, you know, view that you've become. And it's, you know, again, in, in my field, 
it's not some massive spectrum of being. You wake up in the morning pretty much you. Mm-hmm. You know, wake up like, oh, somebody else today, right? You wake up you. Um, your very young children don't wake up that way. Mm. They wake up with a lot of ways of being available, and they go through them all in a day, right? <laughs> Right? That's a very but, accurate way right, of describing it. And it's, and it's like over there and then over here. But over time, it gets less and less and less and less and more defined and more like kind of ontologically narrow until mm-hmm. there they are, right? They're just that way. Mm. Now, and what I would say is, as you're, as you're going through those phases as a, as a young person, those decisions that you're making, you're coming up with an answer, and the answer is, I'll be X, I'll be Y. And at some point in my life, I came up with, hard working will solve this, whatever it was. Mm. And so, and it was, you know, as I'm going through my teens and my 20s, yeah, it was solving a lot of stuff because you're kind of motored and driving forward, right? And so you've got that kind of, and then you get into your 30s, and it doesn't ultimately solve the problem that you thought it would at some level, and that's the problem of you. Right. It doesn't solve you. You know, you're just becoming more and more and more that. Right. So, and I know, wonder, it's like, because you, you had said earlier, like, you know, you recognized in the course of your personal self-reflection that that thought, I'm not smart enough, right. was there in the background. Mm-hmm. And you weren't sure when, but if you have the thought somewhere in the background, I'm not smart enough, it makes a whole lot of sense that your go-to defense against that would be, well, I'll work hard. Well, I'll be better than everybody else. I'll put in the hours. I'll work hard. So if you're defending against that voice in the background, that's where... I see where your point is. Like that's where the adjustment got made that pivoted you off track of being this more whole person that could be lovable and hardworking and smart and connected and all the things in balance. And it went off to like, well, I have to turn this voice off that says I'm not smart. So the only thing I can really focus on is be the hard worker and let the rest atrophy. And and it's not just I'm not smart. It's that I'll never be smart enough. Mm -hmm. It'll never It'll never be smart enough. It doesn't matter so what I do. you can never stop working. Right. So the drive is like, it's mechanical. Like, yes. And that's what I say to people. Like, All human beings are driven to be the way they've become. Driven. To protect, like, all of it's driven, to protect right? their sense of self. Right. So, so if I'm laid back, for instance, if that's one of my default ways of being, like I'm laid back, I'm driven to be laid back. I'm not, I'm not just, you know, this is my answer. This is what I've realized in that life of growing up. Like, this will get me what I want. This this way of being. And it could be stuff like uh, like being kind. I could be stuck with that. Now, you, if you actually ask somebody who has that as a default way of being, being kind, they'll tell you it's a pain in the butt. I feel like they'll always be nice to people and then end up with these resentments, but they can't say it because they're kind. It's like it's this kind of tortured but torn between the two things ontologically I've been stuck with like that's my default answer to everything I get people or I get the world to respond more when I'm being kind 
or more right. when I'm being hardworking or more when I'm being competitive, right? And, and if you, if you, I find one of the great ways that you can actually get to the heart of your default ways of being is ask your friends. They'll tell you. I know them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think at the core of all these things, you're saying like, what is the goal? What are you trying to get? Or what are you trying to protect yourself from when you have these default ways that get that start to develop these, what I, in psychology, we might call them defenses. I think it's, you know, what are the drivers for everybody, for us, for our kids, for our parents, it's to be seen, to be loved, to have connection, to get your needs met, right? Your needs for love and, and, and protection from the world and being seen as like lovable. And so if you are finding that I, my default mode moves into these kind of, kind of like rigid ways of being, kind of fragmented ways of being, it's probably because that works to get the feeling of, okay, people will, will take care of me. People will see me. People will love me if I'm this way. Yeah. And so going back to parenting, I think it's so critical that we pay attention to this because we might be shaping our kids' sense of self, their sense of inner defenses or inner, you know, these stories that they tell, these pivots that they make, these adaptations that they make, because the, their perception, their unconscious probably perception is that our approval of them, our love of them, our support for them is dependent on them showing up in that way. And that's the way I show up. It gets the best results. And so I'll stay there. We have to watch that as parents. We have to watch what we are reinforcing inadvertently, maybe even unconsciously on our end. It's a lot of work. I would go back in a little bit. Yeah. I would say, I would say, I would say to people, the best thing you can teach your kids is that they will make meaning out of it. And, and, and what I want parents to get is you're screwed. You're screwed. You're screwed because no matter what you do, there's no guarantee they're going to take your intent. They'll make their meaning out of that, right? So I'll give you a classic example for people is somebody might feel as if when they were a child, their parents were cold and they didn't express the love in a way that landed for that child. And then they go into their adult life and they have a child and they say, I'm going to shower my kid with love. I'm just going to give them all that love that I feel as if I'm going to make sure my kids get that. One of your kids is probably going to grow up feeling like you were just too much. You were kind of overwhelming. It was just like the meaning they'll take, they could take from that easily would be would you suffocated them. Mm-hmm. So they're going to have children. They're going to say, I am not going to do that with my children. I'm going to let my children have the freedom. And, the, and then their child might grow up with like my father never really or my mother never really or they never expressed the love for me. So even though you might have intent, you have to always kind of, there's way more power in saying to your child, and I've, I've had these conversations, particularly with my older son, but, you know, my, my middle son's 11, so we're kind of starting to have those conversations a little more, not too in-depth, just kind of throwing them in there, but, like, you're, you're going to make meaning out of how I'm your dad and the kind of dad I am and the kind of dad I'm not, and... You're, you're going to kind of run with that. 
you know, and I've had these conversations with my older son, you know, because he, he's 18 now, so we can certainly have some of those more philosophical mm-hmm. questions. Sure, yeah. And I really feel as if my job is to just, rather than tiptoeing around what he might do, put a big bright light on that he'll do. There's way more power in that for him than anything that I might offer him. Yeah. For him to get like, oh yeah, I can see now that that's something that I apportion to that. Not mm-hmm. necessarily that it's that, but that that was what I ended up with out of that. And yeah. then, you know, coaching him into like little things like, okay, and how's that trailed out in your life? And what's been the impact of that on you? And what's been the impact of that on you and other people around you? What's it like to live with that? Okay, and then living that way, what do you never get? And then when you get your eye on what you never get, then you start to get an understanding of what could be. Yeah. And I'd argue you can have those conversations earlier than 11. Like I have conversations with my five-year-old son about, and I in, I've been having these conversations to some degree since he was much younger than that and my daughter, but like saying like when something happens to them that they didn't like to say, huh, tell me more about what that meant to you. Like, what do you think yeah. the other person was thinking when they did that thing? Yeah. Helping them to try to practice putting their mind first into their own internal world, identify that they are making meaning of something. And then helping them to put their mind into the mind of the other to help them understand that they were probably making meaning of something. We have subjective experiences that are different from one another. That, if you can help your kids do that, you can do that at a very young age. It's obviously, it's not going to be as sophisticated as the conversations you're having with your 18-year-old, but simply those that building that ability to reflect on the meaning that we make and the meaning that others make, that is, I think, the, the, the base core skill that you're talking about. Right. I mean, what you're speaking of is your superpower. Okay. So your superpower is your ability to shift context. Right? All human beings have that ability. You can shift context. And so all of those things allow you to shift the context from I was here looking at this situation, and now I'm here looking at this situation, which makes it different. So now, mm-hmm. now I have a different experience of this thing. It's not the same experience. And so, um, the one, the the kinds of conversations I will have with my younger kids is stuff like, okay, I get that, and what else could it be though? Well, it could be this, okay, and what else? And then, if you just let them think about it, they'll come up with ten different variations on that same situation. And I say, well, you just pick the one that empowers you the most. Mm-hmm. And they'll go, okay, well, I'll pick this one. Okay, good, fine. And I just want them to get that they've picked that. Like that was the freedom. You picked that. You could have picked any other one. The freedom is in the shifting of the context, is in moving. And then, you know, a kind of thin way to talk about it is kind of perspective. But, you know, you have to remember, like, when, when you're in, related to something from from a certain vantage point, it's not as thin as perspective. It's, you're in the world of that thing. It's like mm-hmm. 
you're in the domain that all that that is, and and you're interacting with it, right? So the German philosopher Heidegger said there is only being in the world, and you're being in that world, and so you have all the solutions and all of the all of the kind of logic that that world will present you with. When you shift context, you get to sit in another world with all of those options and all of that logic and, and everything that that presents you with. So, you know, when, and in this book, you know, if you sit in it, you know, one of the things I say about my books, they're never long, but the value isn't what I've written. The value is in what it kind of forces you to think about. The value is in the gaps between the paragraphs. Are you thinking? Are you turning this over? Are you seeing the implications? Because that's the use. It's not my words. Yeah. So, so when you when you shift, and you have the ability to shift context, and you practice shifting context, like like you're talking about your children, like you practice shifting context, nothing sticks. Like like you're like Teflon. You can shift your way out of anything and be empowered and handle your life rather than getting locked down in these little kind of vignettes that we kind of get stuck in. And, and, and then so we end up looking for answers to help us deal with a vignette that we're in. And I say, you're just in a world of something right now. And if you could shift context, you would see a whole other way to interact with us. Yeah, that is so empowering because it gives you choice and it gives you agency. I love, I'm I'm very, very excited about that. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. If people want to learn more about your book, the work you do, your other books, how can they connect with you? How can they get this book? I mean, everywhere, you know, I'm lucky enough to have, you know, one of the big Mac Daddy publishers. So... Um, I'm just a little Scottish man with a big Mac Daddy publisher, <laughs> um, but you know everybody that you can that you get books Amazon online, all the other places online. Um, I also do the audio book, um, and it's I, I always do my own audio book, so you get you know you get this awesome Scottish you get, accent. You get Shrek telling you you get your stuff together. <laughs> you know it's pretty good. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously all the major bookstores and places like that. And then I'm online, GaryJohnBishop.com. You can find me on Instagram. Um, I'm doing the threads thing now, which is good. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm into oh, it. I'm going to start following you on threads. I, I'm yeah. going to start talking to you on threads because yeah. I've been trying to play with it too. And it's it's interesting. Yeah, it's fun. Um, yeah. And then I'm also on, you know, TikTok and and. I'm still kind of hanging around in X now, we're calling it. I'm not sure what ah, we're doing over there, whatever we're calling yes, it. Yes. Uh, I, I'll, I'll put something up there occasionally. But but I really like interacting with people and giving them little nuggets of thought. And, and sometimes it's a little confrontational in terms of like when you have to think about things in a new way. But, yeah. um, but you know, I'm being boldly Scottish out there and doing it anyway. Well, that's fantastic. We'll put all the links to the, to your contact info in the in the show notes and the show description too, so people can click and find you. And I was this is really fun talking with you. So, congrats on the book. Go get grow up. Being the parent your kids deserve. Thank you so much for coming on awesome. the show. All right, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Gary, I want to hear about it. 
Let me know by leaving a review and giving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Your review not only helps me to know what topics you're interested in having me explore deeper, but it also helps in getting some amazing experts on the show. And to thank you for your review, which helps me spread this message of parenting support far and wide and reach the ears of other parents just like you, I'm going to give anyone that leaves an Apple podcast review a free copy of my Banish Burnout weekly calendar. All you have to do is DM me the word review to Dr. Sarah Brown on Instagram, or you can send me an email with a screenshot of your review and I'll send my calendars right to your inbox. Thanks so much for listening and don't be a stranger. Thank you.